Amen. Church, let's open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 8. So we will continue our study of the book of Joshua. Hey, Matt, I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Can you pull up, I think it was the second, or whoever's, Abby, second verse of the song we just sang. It begins, fear not, maybe. It has the words fear not in it. There we go. Fear not, I am with you. You just sang this. Hope you all knew you sang it. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. Why? For I am your God. I will still give you aid. I reminded you of this many times over the years. You know, in terms of the numerical frequency, the number one command in the Bible is not love, even though love shows up a lot. The thing that is repeated to God's people more than any other command in the scripture is don't be afraid. Fear not. Take courage. Something along those lines. We just sang it. It makes it into many of our hymns and songs. Fear not, I am with you. Don't be dismayed. Why do you think the Lord reminds his people so often to not be afraid? Do you think it's because we live life saying, I got this? We go into every encounter, we wake up every morning saying, no problem, nothing to fear here, I got this? No. It's because we live in a constant state of at least temptation to be fearful. There are a lot of things, both real and imagined, that can cause us to be dismayed. And God says to us repeatedly, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. We just sang that. I hope you believe that you can take courage because God is with you. Thank you, Abby. You can take that down now. Well, that leads us into the very first verse of chapter 8 of Joshua. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. I don't know if you use the word dismay regularly. I had to look it up to remind myself what it means to be dismayed. To be dismayed is consternation, maybe some frustration and some fear, usually because of some unexpected event. You ever have an unexpected event, something that you didn't anticipate happening and now it's happened and now you're tempted to be a little bit afraid and a little bit provoked, a little bit upset, discouraged, those kind of things. Yeah, we have those. We all have those on a regular basis. Well, why might Joshua be tempted to fear and dismay? Well, think about what he's just been through. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know where we're at here in the story. Joshua just had to execute a member of the nation of Israel. Can you imagine? He loved him. If you recall, the way he introduced Achan last week, he called him my son. When the Lord, through his 
omniscient, miraculous way led Achan out and exposed him as the one who had committed the sin, Joshua looked at him him and said, my son, confess what you've done. Joshua loved him. This is one of his men, one of his people. And he had to carry out God's justice upon Achan. Well, that would cause you some kind of internal turmoil, maybe not fear, but certainly it would be hard to do that. As a pastor, I can tell you, and any of the other elders here can can agree with me, as a pastor, one of the most difficult things in all of ministry is when there is sin among the people of God. We expect people out in the world to sin. In fact, we are shocked when they don't, right? At least we should be. But when it's people that you've co-labored with, people uh, that you have poured yourself into, those who you think they know better, they've lived lives that seem to indicate they love the Lord, when they go down paths that are destructive and sinful, it's hard. The Apostle John wrote in 3 John, which I'm sure you all know well, if you stick to your Bible reading plan every year, you at least get through it once, right? It's it's not a well-known book, but he makes a statement in there that I love. He says, nothing brings me more joy than to know that my children are walking with in the truth. And I don't think he's talking about his biological children there, although that's certainly true. He's talking as a pastor, as as a shepherd, as an apostle, saying, as I hear the reports, as I see Christians walking in truth, that brings me the greatest joy. Well, the inverse of that is true as well. When you see people who should know better walking in lies, walking in the lust of their heart, walking in gossip and dissension and so on, it just can be crushing and discouraging. And that's what Joshua was going through here, reflecting on the fact that Achan had committed this atrocious sin. Also, he lost 36 of his soldiers. 36 of his men died in the battle. They were so sure of victory. It was a a done deal. In fact, remember they sent out the scouts and they came back and said, hey, we got this. Just send maybe 3,000. We don't need a big army. This will be no problem. They are inferior to us and God's people were routed by this inferior army. And Joshua was thinking as the commander, we're going to We're going to go in and take this land with these men now who are scared out of their mind because they were defeated so handily? Yeah, that would bring dismay. That would bring discouragement and fear. And more important than all of those, God said to Joshua, I will not be with you. Is there anything more fearful in all of your life than if God were to show up and say, I'm done with you. I will not be with you. I mean, what is our hope in the midst of trial and battles and all the things that come against us? Our hope is he is with us. God had just said to Joshua, I'm not with you anymore. So of course he's gonna be overwhelmed 
with discouragement and fear. But God shows up this morning and he says, Joshua, do not fear or be dismayed. You've done what I've asked you to do, Joshua. You did the hard thing. I told you I was going to expose the sin and you need to take care of it, and you did it. Now, get ready. I'm with you. Don't be discouraged. Move on. In fact, he says, take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. All right, so it's time to give you a little grammar lesson here. He said, I have given you I. If you are a student of grammar, and I know most of you are, not talk about grandpa and grammar, I'm talking about how language works. If you're a student of grammar, you know something about the perfect tense. All right, some of you live for this, right? Raise your hand if you live for this stuff. Raise your hand if you're lying to me. So, perfect tense is distinguished from other past tenses. If I said, I have been married for 28 years, then you assume what about my current state? I'm married. If I say, I had been married for five years, you start thinking, is he married now or not? If I said I was married, you have no idea about my present state, right? There, it matters what we say, how we, how we say that when we use the past tense. Here God says, I have given you I. The perfect tense is used to describe something that started in the past and it continues to the present. Jesus used this tense when he was telling his disciples, I'm leaving. And of course, they were now dismayed. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm leaving, yes, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will provide for you. At the end of that discourse, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's not all rosy. It's not all easy. You are going to be hated. Christian, do you believe that? I mean, it's not a pleasant thought. We don't preach and teach on this every Sunday. I just, I start off the service with, it's a good day. And it is a good day, but that doesn't mean it's an easy day. We are promised tribulation. We are promised there are going to be people who don't like us very much if we stand for truth. And Jesus, anticipating that, said, look, they hated me. If you follow me, if you stand for me, if you proclaim what I give you to proclaim, they're going to hate you. In this world, you will have trouble. But take courage. Do you remember what he says next? What is it? For I have overcome the world. Perfect tense. Now, he hasn't died on the cross yet. But he's saying, what I've come to do is so certain I can use the perfect tense. And by the time I rise from the dead, I will show you I have overcome the world. It's something that's in our past now, but it has continuing effect into the present and the future. We can take courage in this world that wants to fight against us because Jesus has overcome the world. 
If he said, I had overcome the world, we'd say, but what about now? If he just said, I overcame the world, we'd say, yeah, well, what about now? But I have overcome the world means he has still, right now, he is overcoming the world. We are safe. God says to Joshua, I have given you I. Go take it. It's a done deal in my mind, and it continues on into your present, into your future. Perfect tense matters in our, in our lives, people. Learn your grammar, will you? Take all the people of war with you. Arise, go to I. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of I, his people, his city, his land. You shall do to I and its king just as you did to Jericho and its king. Here's the exception. You shall take only its spoil and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. That part's different. Remember what he said when you go to Jericho? I want you to go in and conquer the city, burn it to the ground. I've given it to you, but you don't take anything. Everything in Jericho is to be given to the Lord. Either if it's living, it's to be killed. If it's valuable like gold and silver and bronze and iron and stuff, all of that stuff is to be put into the treasury of God. It belongs to him. It's all devoted to him. And he gave that command very explicitly. And he said, watch yourselves and make sure you take none of the spoils of Jericho for yourselves. It's all for me, God said. What did Achan do? Achan disregarded God's command. Achan walked into the city. Maybe he ran into the city with his sword. He started flinging his sword around as he was told to do. And then he saw the king's cloak. He said, that's a nice robe. It's shiny. It looks valuable. It's way more expensive than any of my cloaks. Who's going to notice if I just slip it into my robe here and take it home? And we were talking about this last week in our small group, and someone noted, where exactly was he going to wear it? Everybody knew they weren't supposed to take anything. Is he going to put on the royal robe and start walking around Israel? He would have been exposed. I don't know what he's going to do with it. But he was lured by the appeal to his eyes. And then he saw a bar of gold. And he saw a bag of silver, and he says, that looks good to me. And he disregarded the command of God, and he took stuff for himself. And what happened? He was exposed by God, and he was punished. He was killed for his sin. But think about the rest of the soldiers. They obeyed. They didn't take any of the stuff. They put it all in the treasury as God had said. They passed the test. They proved their highest priority was obey obeying God. And now God says to those who obeyed him the first time, now as you take this next city, I am handing you much of its wealth for yourselves as your reward for obeying. Remember, he promised them, this is the land flowing with milk and honey. This is going to be prosperous for you. This is going to be a wonderful gift to you. And now that you've obeyed me here in Jericho, now you go into I, and you may take of the spoils of war there. And now these men could go in with good conscience 
and take the stuff and enjoy it. It was God's gift. How much better is it to obey God than to disobey God? I mean, it's better because you don't get punished. That's good, better, right? It's also better because our consciences don't weigh us down. You know that feeling? My guess is in a room this size, there are some of you with a feeling right now. And don't worry, I'm not going to call you out. I don't know who you are. But you know that, that feeling, that, that weight that you carry because you know you are doing something displeasing to God? You don't have to carry that weight around. Confess it. Ask his forgiveness. And he will forgive you. And next time, tomorrow, later this afternoon, don't disobey so you don't reintroduce more of that weight of guilt. You know what I'm talking about, right? Am I the only one that has ever experienced the weight of guilt or the joy of walking in obedience? There's nothing like it. We used to do this with our kids when they were little. Some of you have heard me teach on this before as we talk about parenting. We had a very intentional discipline process with our kids when they were young. And I think I alluded to this a few weeks ago, actually. So uh, when they disobeyed, we would uh, send them into the bathroom to wait for the consequences of their disobedience. And the bigger the infraction the longer I would wait to go in there. So, you know, if it's kind of a little petty thing, they'd go to the bathroom and I'd almost follow them in and say, okay, what did you do? What did I tell you to do? And we have the conversation and stuff, you know. I like the end stuff part. Um, if it were a significant infraction, then I would send them into the bathroom and I would just go sit on the sofa for a while. And what's going on in the kid's mind as they're waiting for me to come in. <sighs> this is going to be really bad. Would he just get in here already and finish this? And then I'd go in and we'd have our talk and stuff. And then after the end stuff part, I would walk back out and say, when you're done crying, come see me. And then I'd go back in the living room. And they would come in and I would say, okay, what did you do? And they would tell me what they did. i say, I forgive you. And then we talk to Jesus about it. And I would remind them that Jesus forgives them. And you know what happens? The wave of joy that sweeps over them when they are released of the guilt? It's amazing. When 20 minutes ago, you could just see it in their little cute faces. They're angry. Well, that wasn't so cute. They're, they're, they're just inside. They're all a mess because their heart is in a bad place. But when they get it out and they confess it and they get right with me and right with God, just the joy that sweeps over them, it's a wonderful transformation. So we always pray, it's okay now, and we do something fun right then and there, something lighthearted so they understand 
we're done here. There's no more animosity, no more, I'm not upset with you. It's all good, and I don't ever bring it up again because what's in the past is the past. That's the joy of obedience. Well, in this case, it's confession. As they now, the rest of the day, and go on and they obey, they're just, life is great. Have you been there with God? There's nothing like the joy of obedience. Tend this conversation with Gabriel this week. Uh, I check in with him. I ask him pretty regularly, how are things going? And he knows what I mean by that. These temptations we've talked about in the past, how are you doing in fighting them and overcoming them? And the, just the other day, I asked him, how you doing? He goes, great. Man, the Lord's really been helping me and it's been going well. And I said, how's that feel? He said, it feels awesome. Feels awesome. The joy of obeying the Lord is so much better than the fleeting pleasures of disobeying. And now these men can go into I and they can conquer the city as God called them and they can enjoy the spoils, the riches from I, and they can enjoy it in good conscience because God said, okay, now it's all yours. Have at it. And they did. And then God gives them their military strategy. Set an ambush for the city behind it. He goes on in the next few verses and explains what that's going to look like. I'm going to skip down to verse 10 because it covers the same territory basically. And this is how the battle went. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people. And he went up with the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. Then all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near and arrived in the front of the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between him and Ai. They took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. So they stationed the people, all the army that was on the north side of the city and its rear guard and on the west side of the city, and Joshua spent that night in the midst of the valley. It came about that when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose up early and went out to meet Israel in battle. See, they were all excited because they just routed them recently. He and all his people at the appointed place before the desert plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled away by the way of the wilderness. And all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. So not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who had not gone out after Israel, and they left the city unguarded and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. So Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in ambush rose quickly from their place. When he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they quickly set the city on fire. When the men of Ai turned back and looked, behold, the smoke of the city ascended to the sky, and they had no place to flee this way or that for the people who had been fleeing to the wilderness turned against the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and slew the men of Ai. The others came out from the city to encounter them so that they were trapped in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, 
and they slew them until no one was left of those who survived or escaped. But they took alive the king of Ai and brought him to Joshua. Now when Joshua had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the field in the wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them were fallen by the edge of the sword until they were destroyed, then all Israel returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. All who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not withdraw his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Israel took only the cattle and the spoil of that city as plunder for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation until this day. He hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset Joshua gave command, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands to this day. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are hard passages. We've already read hard passages, and there are hard passages ahead. There's no way a caring person can listen to this kind of destruction brought upon a people and just fly through it like, oh, that's bad for them, huh? But we have to remember these are wicked people. Remember all the way back, 400 years prior to this, God had said to Abraham, someday I'm going to give this land to your people. But the reason for the delay is their sin has not yet reached the tipping point. But in four centuries or so, their sin, their wickedness is going to reach a point at which I will bring about their destruction and your descendants, Abraham, will be my instruments. The nation of Israel was the tool of God to destroy these wicked people. They worshipped false gods. They taught their wives, these men taught their wives and children to worship false gods. They took pieces of stone and wood and carved it into different creatures and bowed down and said, that is the God who reigns. And here was a chance where they encountered the people who served the one true living God and they never tried to go make peace with them. They never said, hey, is there any way we can be reconciled to your God? No, instead, in their arrogance, they thought, hey, we already routed those guys once. Their God's not so powerful. We'd heard all the stories, but we just took them out in about five minutes. And so he sent, the king sent the entire nation of men Every man went out to fight, and he left his women and children unguarded. In his arrogance, in his conceit, and the whole thing was a military strategy, they were let out, the ambush was set, and now they are doomed. These are not innocent people who are being killed. They were wicked to their core. They hated the one true God. They worshiped idols. The Canaanite peoples were guilty of great licentiousness. 
and now God was bringing judgment upon them. It's hard, it's sobering, but let us not be foolish. That God is still on the throne. And he is no less angry at wickedness today than he was then. And whether it's our nation or nations on other continents, any nation on earth that worships false gods, that pursues great wickedness and sexual license and violence, the fact that those nations have not yet been destroyed by God is simply an expression of his mercy. Paul talks about it in Romans. Why has God not destroyed you yet? He's giving you the chance to repent. Peter said the same thing. He's giving you the opportunity to repent. But there comes a time for every nation when God says, your time is up. And he brings his justice to that nation. There's another element to this. Also in Romans, Paul's about, Paul talks about how God's judgment is not only in the form of bringing one nation upon another and killing them, sometimes his punishment is giving a nation over to depravity. It's like God says, all right, you're going to pursue that kind of wickedness? Fine. I will withdraw my restraints from you and let you go all in in that wickedness. Can you imagine a people pursuing sexual sin, for instance, and violence and murdering 63 million people in the womb? Can you imagine God giving a nation over to depravity like that? You don't have to imagine, do you? We live among a wicked people. Will God judge America? Certainly a case can be made. He is judging America. And we as the church have to speak truth. This is why we send missionaries across the world because those wicked people who are in darkness need to hear about the light. Guess what? It's not just those people over there. Right? I mean, the people over there, meaning the people across the street, people across the office, people across the table, need to hear the truth. We need to tell people what is coming. We can't be sure of what's coming on a particular nation at any time, but we know what happens after this life. It is appointed for man once to die and then judgment. And we know what awaits wicked people who are unrepentant at that point. It is remarkable to think that this very nation, Israel, that are the instruments of God's wrath upon the members of Jericho and I, the next generation of them are going to go and commit the same wickedness as these people. 
They didn't learn their lesson. Remember at the end, I'm skipping ahead. You know, you know the story, some of you have this on your walls, where Joshua says famously, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's saying that to a people that he knows is teetering in their allegiance to God. And he knows he's, his life is about to come to an end. He fears for where this nation's going to go when he's not there. And he was right. But at least in our story, he is there and he leads them well. Verse 30, then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, and Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. You go back and read Deuteronomy. Moses said in faith, when the Lord takes you into the promised land and you get to Gerizim and Ebal, you build an altar to the Lord there. And now they're doing it. An altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. He wrote there in the stones a copy of the law of Moses, that would be the Ten Commandments, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Then afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses has commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Joshua sees this great victory. They get where Moses had told them. They, they make the altar. They offer their sacrifices. And he realizes, I can never stop reminding these people of God's word. Because now they've had a little taste of victory, they'll be complacent. They will forget. And so he has inscribed on these stones the Ten Commandments, and he reads basically what we would call Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy before all the people. And he spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy 28. If you haven't read Deuteronomy 28 lately, I encourage you to read it, or if you'd like a little shorter version, Leviticus 26 captures basically the same thing. It is the list of blessings and curses of the Old Covenant. It is a sober read. Because the covenant Israel was part of is a covenant that started with the word, if. Israel, if you obey all of my commands and statutes, then I will bless you in all these ways. And he lists a number of temporal blessings. I will bless your wombs. You will have healthy babies and lots of them. I will send the rain from the skies and you will have great amounts of food. You will prosper in everything you set your hand to. You will triumph over all of your enemies. One of you will send scores of them running. And he goes on and lists, basically all summed up in, blessed will you be when you go out and blessed will you be when you come in. Everything you put your hand to, you'll be blessed in. If, God says, you obey everything. But there's another side of the if. If you disobey my law, disobey my commandments, disobey my instructions, 
then I will turn it upside down and I will bring great persecution against you, great disease. You will not have healthy babies. You will not have healthy crops. One of them will send a bunch of you flying. You will be cursed in everything you set your hand to and I will bring a nation against you and destroy you. Those are serious consequences of the covenant. And so Joshua, as a good leader, says, before we go further, we've just seen God's great blessing. Let, re let me remind you of the terms of the covenant. If we continue to obey, he will bless us. But if we disobey his laws, he will judge us. You read through Deuteronomy 28. And you will never be more thankful to be in the new covenant. Because our covenant is not that kind of if-then covenant. God does not come to the people today and say, here's the list of all the laws you have to keep, and if you do, I'll bless you, and if you don't, I'll curse you. Praise the Lord. There is an if. The if is, if you will believe in my son, if you will believe in his death and resurrection, if you'll put my trust in the work he did on the cross, then I will forgive you all of your sins. Anybody in here a sinner? Seven, eight, nine, okay, good, half of you. Half of your sinners, good. The rest of you don't need to come back next week because you don't need me. I can't do anything for you if you're not a sinner. All your hands are up in your heart, I hope, right? We're all sinners. If the covenant God brought to you was be perfect or else I will destroy you, anybody here want to sign up for that covenant? No, thank you. Because there's no chance. He says, if you will believe and follow my son, acknowledge he is Lord of all, I will forgive all of your sins and I will fill you with my spirit and I will transform you so that you do obey me. So that you become more righteous all the time. So that you start putting off the old man, putting off those old ways and now walk in my ways. We have new hearts. We have clean hearts and pure hearts and we are growing in Christ-likeness. Oh, we still give it a temptation sometimes. One of these days, I'm going to ask my son how to go, and he's going to put his head down. I'm going to say, go to the bathroom. No, no, not. He's too old for that. We'll have a talk. Right? And we do that for each other. Not only our children, hopefully. Are there people who will ask you, how are you doing? And you know what they mean by that? We all need people like that in our lives, and there are times when we hang our heads. And other times we say, great. By God's grace, I'm doing well. Well, as his spirit fills us, we move further and further down that path where more often than not we say, I'm experiencing the blessings of obeying God, the joy of obedience. Not perfectly, but I'm, I'm, I'm on the right path. All of that is true in the new covenant because he's forgiven our sins and he's given us his spirit. And that's the message we have to take to the world. We are surrounded by people who are wicked people, and they have consciences that are weighing them down. Now, some of them may be so seared they don't care, but some of them 
are a little more tender. The Spirit of God is at work in their hearts, and they are waiting for you and me to come and say, I can bring complete relief to your conscience. Well, I can't, but I can point you to the one who can. Yesterday, standing right here, was a very large man at Loretta Nelson's memorial service. It was a great service, but this pastor from Wooden Valley in particular, uh, Alicia's going to pull that out and put that out where you can all get a hold of it. I want to give you a pastoral mandate to watch it. It was one of the most moving testimonies I think I've ever heard. I'm not going to spoil it for you. It's powerful. It's sobering. It's not something you watch with a bag of popcorn. It's, it's sobering. But this man did a lot of bad things. And he suffered the consequences of doing bad things. There were just consequences. And when he was alone in prison, somebody had left a Bible there where he, they shouldn't have. And he had nothing else to do. And no other resource of any kind, so he starts reading it. And you can guess where the story goes. And his ministry is thriving, and his passion for the Lord and for obedience is growing. I love the story because there was no human who gets credit for his conversion. There was, he was, I mean, he had a rough beginning to life. And again, I'm not, I'll let you listen to it, but a, a rough beginning to life. And it wasn't some self-help, some therapy, some of that. It was the word of God that finally convinced him his life matters. And it was the truth of God that gripped his heart. But here was a man who has done a lot of bad things. And he says there are times when he reflects back on some of the things he's done, and it's really hard. But those times are decreasing. And you can tell the joy of the Lord is filling him day after day. His life has been transformed, and now he's telling as many people as he's able to that there is hope for even the worst of sinners. That's the new covenant. Forgiveness of sin and the power to be different. And that's our covenant. Church, don't let the enemy weigh you down with guilt. You're guilty, bring that to the Lord, confess it, receive his forgiveness, and then get up in the power of the Holy Spirit and walk in righteousness. And remember, Jesus died because you needed a Savior. I needed a Savior. And enjoy the fruit, the reward of the, of the pure heart, of the clean conscience because of the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded of so many things in these Old Testament stories, your power, your omniscience, 
how you hold nations in your hand, you hold armies in your hands. You are sovereign in all things you do. Turn the heart of the king in whichever way you want, like a, like a river. We're also reminded of how wonderful it is to be in the new covenant where we are forgiven, we are, we are filled with joy, we are filled with your Holy Spirit, and your Spirit is actively at work. And so Lord, I pray for, for my church family here, I pray for myself, would you fill us with the joy of the Lord. Lord, weed out any sin that needs to be uprooted, weed out any, if we need to confess, Lord, bring us to confession. But then grant us repentance and the joy of walking faithfully with you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not a believer, who is weighed down with guilt and shame because they are guilty and they know they have no hope, would you grant them the first repentance, a heart that cries out to you, says, Lord Jesus, forgive me, I believe in you. May they trust you just as the man spoke of yesterday. And Lord, may we follow the true Joshua into the promised land in faith and obedience. Amen.